are they playing Downton Abbey songs here? That's what you're thinking. Here's what we're doing. Just so, I don't know if y'all have realized what's happening. First of all, Jordan made that video, and that's just photos. He literally would move a piece of a fraction and take a photo. Move a piece of fraction, so, and then he just lined up the, the photos in a video editing software, and that's how they're moving. Jordan, you're amazing. You're awesome. So that's it. So we're in the, we're in the Kings. If you have a Bible, you can go to Second Kings, Second Kings chapter five. We are doing a series called Royal Lands, and so chess has a king, and so the king is the most important person in the chessboard. That's why you're seeing a chessboard. That's why Downton Abbey, because it seems like they live like kings. There, you got the connection, right? It's all pretty pretty easy. It, it, it's a whole lot better if it's explained, I realize. But what we're looking at as we've been looking, Jack has been preaching through the book of 1 Kings. I'm going to be preaching today in the book of 2 Kings. Um, I was assigned to pick between chapters 1 through 11, and I picked chapter 5. Um, but what we're doing is we're looking at the kings of Israel. Um, Israel didn't have a king in the beginning. They had the Lord. They had God. And they said, we don't want... Uh, uh, you to be our, our king anymore. We want to be like the rest of the people and we want to have a, a human king like the rest of the lands. In other words, we want to look like the rest of the Gentile nations, God. We don't want you to be our king anymore. That's a pretty big problem. That's, that's a huge matzo ball, as Seinfeld would say, sitting out there kind of hanging and like, oh, that's a big problem. So that's what we're looking at as the kings. We're wanting to know what are the implications and applications for these people who wanted to have kings and they wanted to see how the kings ruled? Um, there's not direct applications necessarily because you aren't kings and we don't live in a country with kings. But what we're trying to do is look at those and apply the ideas of these, of the modern, of, of these kings in our modern context. Because here's the deal. As we look at these kings, you've got the first ones that were, you know, well, Saul wasn't great, but you had David, man after God's own heart, Solomon, we talked about that. And then after that, the, the two kingdoms kind of splinter into two. The, Israel turns into, the twelve turn into ten tribes to the north and two tribes down to the south. So you've got Israel up top and Judah. Now they're all considered Israel, but when you talk about them in, in the Old Testament, they, they say Israel turns into two kingdoms, Judah's in the south and they just keep calling the one up north, uh, they keep calling it Israel. So you've got ten tribes that follow the one in the north, two that tri- follow in the south, and then they have a series of these two particular tribes going through time having good kings and bad kings and good kings and bad kings. And so we start seeing what happens when the people of God have good kings and bad kings. That's what we're looking at as we're uh, going through Second Kings um, chapter, uh, well, actually all of it, First and Second Kings. Um, so that's, that's first. Second of all, I want to talk about what's going on here. Today we've got nine white roses up front. Um, these nine are symbolic of each one of the victims from Charleston. So that's why they're up here. Um, we're going to have a special prayer time for them at the very end of the service. We usually have a, a pretty uh, important prayer time for different things, but that's going to be the structure of our, our prayer time at the end um, today. So um, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about if you've had remotely any access to television this past week. Um, last thing is, as I said, we're going to be in Second Kings chapter 5. Now, I had to try to select what to do out of these 11 chapters. I, I just picked one text, um, and I was very tempted, very, very tempted to go to Second Kings chapter 2, where Elisha, he's just traveling one day, just walking, you know, just walking down the road, wanting to be God's man. Um, and then it says this, he went up from there, from Bethel, and while he was going on the way, some little small boys uh, out of the city came and jeered at him. Apparently, Elisha was a bald man and definitely pretty self-conscious about it. Um, and they started cheering at him, saying, you go up, you bald head, you go up, you bald head. And so Elisha turns around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys in pieces. And then that's it. I'm like, what? Um, what? What? God, why did Elisha sick bears on little kids and kill them? Um, so I'm glad I'm, we're not actually preaching expositorily through Second Kings because um, I'm not sure what I would say there. Jordan actually has a pretty good insight on that. So you can ask Jordan about the bears killing children. I mean, why that's in the Bible. But we're actually going to go over to chapter 5. Um, but I can say this, children, if you make fun of bald-headed men or you're not nice to adults... God might send bears just to grab you and kill you and tear you in 42 pieces. I'm just kidding. That's a really terrible application. That's not true, kids. Your parents wouldn't do that, and God wouldn't either. All right, so um, let me pray, because it, obviously it's time for that. Um, and then 
we are going to be in Second Kings chapter five. Second Kings chapter five. So uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you that it's it's true that these are your words and that everything in it is absolutely applicable for us. There's not one sentence. There's not one um, part of it. There's not one fraction of any of it. Every single letter is your word to us. Even the genealogies are there for our benefit. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look at this, your word would do its promised work. You promise that your word will go (coughs) before us. And as we hear and as we understand that the Holy Spirit comes and presses these things into our heart, he challenges us. He causes us to understand them. And then where there's places where we need to be convicted, he does that. But he always comforts. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at your text this morning, God, that you would do those things. As we look at 2 Kings 5 and have a greater understanding of what it is that you're calling us as your church to do, Lord, that we would hear this, accept this challenge, and be willing to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon is this. So in, in this story, 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a man named Naaman. He is not an Israelite. He is not a part of the people of God. He is going to interact with the prophet at the particular time, Mr. Bear himself, Elisha. Um, and so here's the, uh, here's the title of the sermon. You can go ahead and put it up. Boom. Right there. Nope, you passed it. Go back. There it is. You are Remedies Elisha. So it's the point of what we're trying to say here is you, you who sit here, you are Remedies Elisha. You're the one that has to be Elisha at Remedy. We'll talk about what that means. One commentator, before we get into the text, says this about 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-15. through 15. He says, The story of Naaman's conversion is one of the most detailed and one of the most sociologically and psychologically rich stories in the Bible. Almost for the very first time, the Bible depicts the change of mind and heart, as well as the change of status that occurs when a sinner turns to the God of Israel. So in this story, we're going to see this, a story of, an Israel, of, of a non-Israelite, a gentle, someone who's actually an enemy of Israel, a literal enemy of Israel, come to know the God of Israel. And so it has massive implications for us. Um, I'm going to read <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, and we're, we're just going to kind of take it a piece by piece because I don't have time. Well, I do have time. Well, I probably don't have time, but uh, I, what I want to do is take piece out of at a time and work through it so you can see everything. So um, what we're going to as as what we're going to do as we see this is five important facets on what it means for us to be the church and doing the mission of the church. So we live in the New Testament and we're no longer Israel, the people of God. We're the church, which is still the people of God. Your continuity or discontinuity between those two things, that's a whole another theological discussion one day if you're a dispensationalist or a covenantal theologian. And I don't have time to even explain those words. But we do believe that we are, we are the church and we're supposed to be doing something. And in this particular text, there's going to be five things that you're going to see about how important it is uh, if you're going to carry out the mission. What are the most important facets as me, as a church member, that I'm supposed to do. Naaman, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had been given victory to Syria. We need to stop there and you need to understand. So we've got, we've got King David, we've got King Solomon, and then after that it splinters into two kingdoms. You've got ten and you've got two and they're trucking along and they have good kings and they have bad kings. And what happens when you have good kings and you have bad kings is other people that are in other regions come in and they start trying to attack either the north or even, even the south. And people come in and they beat up Israel and they kill them. And when the kings don't follow Israel, I mean, when the king, these particular kings don't follow God, they're not listening to the Lord. Should we attack these people? How can we defend? Will you come defend us? Lord, we, are, we need you. When, when you have kings that aren't submissive to God, other kings like the kings of Syria come in and can defeat Israel easily. And this, this particular king, uh, the king of Syria, by the way, if you look at today, Syria and Israel still not in good relationship. 
it, it goes back 20, at least 2,500 years, if not more. Um, well, the king of Syria was not in good relationship with the king of Israel because they were attacking Israel. Uh, and this commander, Naaman, was a commander in the army. So he was an integral part of bringing lots of horrible things to the people of Israel. So we're already starting with, if, we're, if we were Jewish and we're reading this a long time ago and we're seeing a, a commander and the army of the king of Syria, who's a great man, and he's, he, he has high favor with the king of Syria, would say, so? I don't like them. So we got to try to feel the weight of how the Israelites, when they hear this text, are like, Syria attacks us. Even when we have bad kings, why should I like this guy Naaman? You know, it's like a Gamecock fan saying, why should I care about Clemson? You know, that's how it feels, but much worse. Um, and it says, at, at the end of verse 1, it says this. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a man that, that had leprosy. So leprosy back then, ancient leprosy, and this is graphic, but I want you to feel the intensity. There's, a, there's an intensity about what's happening in this man because you need to know the desperation that he has. It's important to know the desperation that he has because it's important to know the desperation that unbelievers have today for them to be able to, to have a, a spiritual healing. So here's the, the physical condition. Ancient leprosy, leprosy began as a small red spot on the skin. Before too long, the spots get bigger and turn to, turn to white, a sort of shiny or scaly appearance. Pretty soon, the spots spread over the entire body and hair begins to fall out. First from the head and then from the eyebrows. And as things get worse, fingernails and toenails become loose. They start to rot and they eventually fall off. The joints of the fingers and toes begin to rot and fall off piece by piece. Gums begin to shrink and they can't hold teeth anymore and the teeth start to become lost. Leprosy keeps eating away at your face until literally your nose falls off, your palate and even your eyes rot out and the victim wastes away until death. Nasty, gross, intense. Why did you read that? Because we need to know the absolute intensity that this man was feeling. He was absolutely desperate. So desperate that he would go to the enemy and say, I need help. Import that to today. Now, people that are lost will never realize that this is what's spiritually happening to them. That they are literally deteriorating from the inside and dying. But we need to, as Christians, realize that's what's happening. They are spiritual lepers. And we should feel massive compassion for them because of this. So, the first facet is this in regard to mission. Notice. Notice the great need in our city, in our neighborhood, in our spheres of influence. We, I think, notice things quite often. We're noticing people. But usually the things that we notice are the things that affect us. And how they're going to help us. We don't, I think, I don't very well at all, notice the needs of others with any level of intensity. Because we realize if I do notice it, it's going to cause me or make me have to do a lot of things to help people. And that's going to take up my time. Because I like my time for me. Because I'm all about me. But here, this man had leprosy. And he was an outcast, no doubt, even though he was a man of... of war and a great man of valor, as he would continue to deteriorate, he would become more and more of an outcast. And when we see that this would be the case, this would be the eventuality of this man, we need to realize that as he's a leper, Elisha's still going to interact with him. Elisha's still going to heal him in a very bizarre way, but he's going to. And that shows to us that Naaman was not too far gone for the healing. And because Naaman, the principle being pushed forward to us this, is that no one is too far gone. This is a leper. The point of mentioning him is because he's trying to help us see no one is too far gone to receive the healing of the Lord. Which means the people you know that are the worst of the worst, they are not too far gone to receive the healing of the Lord. As those people stood in the courtroom and tell Dylan Roof, I forgive you because they really believe even you, Dylan Roof, are not too far gone to receive the healing of the Lord. You can be spiritually healed if you confess your sins and trust Him. We, we have to believe 
that the worst of the worst of the people around you, as we actually notice the great need in our cities, our neighborhoods, and our spheres of influence, we have to believe those people can be saved. We have to believe it or we'll never do anything. We'll say, well, that's just too much work. Jesus actually, even Jesus mentions this small little story in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4, 27. He's doing great works in his own hometown. And they're like, why don't you, you did those great works over in Capernaum. Why don't you do those great works here? We want you to do those great works here in our city. And Jesus mentions this particular story of Naaman. And he basically says, I'm in my hometown and my hometown is rejecting me. God did great works in Capernaum. But the reason why I'm not doing great works here is because you're rejecting me in my own hometown. And the same truth is being showed in this Old Testament. Because Israel was under a bad king at this time. And they were rejecting God at that time. They were not walking with God at, the, at that time. God does a great work in the Gentiles and those that are far off. And he continues to do that exact same thing today. You are never too far off from God. God can absolutely do a great work in you. Even if you feel like right now, and you're in this room and you're far from God. God can do a tremendously strong work in you. No one is too far gone to receive grace from Jesus. So the first thing that we need to realize is that we need to notice the great need in our city. It's absolutely crucial if we're going to carry out the mission of the church that we become people who live with eyes open and start intentionally noticing the need in our cities. And just because something that passes you by is too hard, you don't just, you know, sorry, that seems too hard. We've got to become noticing people. We've got to become noticing people. Second thing, if you keep going. So he was a leper. Now... The Syrians, on one of their raids, so as they destroyed Israel one day, decide that they would steal or kidnap a tiny little girl. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. They literally kidnapped this little girl and took her back to Syria and made her a servant of them. Now if I was the little girl, I would think she would be pretty mad. Never to see her parents again. Separated from her family. She would carry around some bitterness, I would imagine. Well, let's notice what she does. Very St. Patrick-like. St. Patrick was a, um, a, a guy that lived in the 3rd or 4th century. He was, he was an Englishman. He was taken off over to Israel. And he finally escaped... Not Israel. I'm sorry. Ireland. And it started with an I. And so as, as he finally escaped, God convicted him to go back to the people who captured him and enslaved him and go be a missionary to Ireland. That's why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day, because he was a missionary to the people that enslaved him. And this is very much the exact, very St. Patrick-like is this little girl. She is going to be a proclaimer of truth to Naaman and give him the awareness of how to be, how to be healed. So this is what happens. Now the Syrians on their, one of their raids had carried off the little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman's got leprosy. You know what? There's a guy back in Israel, back in Samaria. Um, his name's Elisha. If he went and saw that guy, he'd be healed. That dude was the bomb. He healed everybody. He, he just healed everybody. She didn't say the bomb. But like, he can heal anybody. So Naaman went in and thus told his Lord. Thus and so... I know we don't speak like this. Thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. So Naaman hears this and he goes and tells his boss, hey, um, this little girl that we stole, she said that there's this guy back in Elisha in Samaria that can heal me. I, I want to be healed. What do you think, guy? What do you think, king? And the king of Syria said, go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So we see that the king of Syria says, yes, you're commanding my army. You're important to me. I want to do that. And so what we see here is this. We see this tiny little girl who had no reason to speak up. She was, she was a slave servant against these people. Every reason to say, hope you're right, right? But that's not what she did. Instead, she was very missional, very mission-like, very bold. So here's the second thing. First thing we notice, we notice those around us. The second is this, we need to be intentionally bold for Christ. We need to be intentionally bold for Christ. She's held captive, but she helps her captors anyway. 
She wasn't bitter, but she chooses to display kindness instead of retaliation. She was used by God. And here's, here's something I want you to make sure you realized. This little girl, likely the hero of the entire story. The little girl, if you read the entire story, is the hero. If you have very little giftings, if you have very little to offer, you can still be used just like this little girl, being used in little things, and God can take little old you and use the little old things that you can do, just like he uses this captured girl, and make it huge. Just, you are never discounted from being, being able to use by God. The little girl ends up being the hero. So, um, you need to be bold for Christ. You see this little girl, she could have kept her mouth closed. She could have been scared and just decided not to say anything. But be intentionally bold for Christ. So as you, as we look back at number one, as you notice needs, when those things come, you have to make a serious mental decision at this moment. Do I, as I notice that, do I want to go get involved in that? It's going to take some boldness. It makes me nervous. I don't know those people. I walk over there and I start saying things about Jesus and serving and the church and I'm supposed to help and I want to get plugged in. That's going to make me feel weird. They're probably going to think I'm weird. All that's just weird, right? I know it is. I've had plenty of those conversations. And every time I get the butterflies in my stomach, I'm like, oh, here we go. All right, Lord. So you have to be bold. It's imperative at those moments that you just say, all right, butterflies, get down. I'm going to go for it. But a lot of times, I think, they rise up and they just overtake us. And we can't do it. Listen, this, is, this may be one of the most important things for you carrying out the mission. You've just got to start saying, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be bold. This is what I do. This is how... Maybe this is a little bit kind of, that's, that's over the top, Fud. <laughs> but maybe it is. But maybe it's not. But this is what I do. I picture something in my head. There's a text in Revelation chapter 14 that just haunts me. But because it haunts me, it pushes me in that moment to say, well, that seems much worse than what I'm feeling right now. So I'm going to be bold. This is what I do. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, it's describing, it's a visual picture of the unbelievers that will be harvested at the day of reckoning. And this day of reckoning, this harvest, isn't a good harvest. It's a bad harvest. This is what it says. The angel comes and he swings his sickle across the earth and he gathers the great harvest of the earth. He's talking about unbelievers. And he takes these unbelievers and he throws them this, in this great wine press of the wrath of God. In other words, I don't know if you know anything about wine, but you get a bunch of grapes and you put them in the wine press and then you stomp around and all the wine juice just comes out. And what the Bible in Revelation 14 is saying, that's exactly what it's going to be like for the unbelievers. They're going to come and they're going to swipe up all the unbelievers. They're going to throw them in the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God. And then it says the wine press is going to be trodden. That means people... God, or it's just all a picture, but it's going to be stepped on and continually stepped on. These unbelievers are going to be feeling the continual torture for the rest of their life. And that, that it says the wine press was trodden outside of the city and the blood flowed instead of juice falling. It's the blood of the unbelievers. The blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, as high as a horse's face. It says for 16,000 stadia. That's for 184 miles. 184 mile wide is blood up to the, to the bridles of horses of the blood of the unbelievers that do not confess Jesus because they are suffering the wrath of God for their unbelief. I know that's extreme, but that's what I picture in that moment. And I say, I can be bold. I can be bold. I don't want that for them. Why would we ever, ever want that for an unbeliever? That is the worst possible eternal torture and that pushes me to say well what they say about me means nothing if they don't know jesus for what's coming and the most loving thing i can do is go serve them and be the church that's what i use that's what pushes me to be bold i don't do it perfectly i'm not standing up here as a man that does it perfect but that's what haunts me the little girl here is bold She's intentionally bold. Never underestimate the power of your words. This little girl uses all she has, which is her words, 
Never think that God can't use you. Never think that you can't point people as this little girl. This is what she does. She points people to the prophet. He can heal you. That's your job. Point people to the prophet, priest, king. Jesus can heal you. You never know what God can do, even if you are just obedient in these tiny little things. You can do all kinds of stuff. I mean, to the basic bottom, you can give someone a book if that's what they need. You can invite them to church. You can pray with them. You can bring food to them if they're sick. You can pay the bill for that stranger. You can finally start that ministry that you've always wanted to start, but you feel like you need to ask my permission to start it. Start the ministry. I was in, I was in school a couple weeks ago, and there was a pastor, his name's Dave Horner. He started a church called Providence Baptist Church in Raleigh 40 years ago. He's a church planner, started Providence Baptist Church 40 years ago. It's, it's a massive church now. He, he's, the only, he's the starting pastor, founding pastor, and the only pastor for 40 straight years. And so I remember when I was in seminary, I went to that church because John Piper was there. And I was like, John Piper comes to this church. This church is awesome. And then like a month later, Dave Crowder was there. I was like, this church is awesome. It was far. I never, I never drove down to it and went to it because it was in Raleigh and I was in Wake Forest. But I was like, man, can you imagine me and the pastor, Piper, Crowder? Well, in class two weeks ago, the pastor of that church, he just retired, just retired. And they're starting their transition for the next guy. And so I was talking to him. Great. I mean, just an unbelievably nice guy. I wrote down something he says of why, this is, this is his insight of 40 years of starting a church and planning it. His insight of why people don't start ministries. This is what he says. This is so good. This is so good. Part of the complexity imposed on the discipleship process comes from the idea that the church should broker all aspects of spiritual growth. In a sense, yeah, we should. But you have the Holy Spirit and the Bible right? You can do stuff. And this is what he says. Rather than taking individual initiative, people assume that the church and their leaders have the primary responsibility. We have responsibility, but all of us have the primary responsibility, not just me. And this is what he says. Until asked directly by the pastor or a program is finally organized within the church so that the church can come and do something, which their actions are officially sanctioned now, the average church member seldom thinks of acting unilaterally, which you should all the time. You should think of acting unilaterally to do mission all the time. And this is what he says. When pastors can break through that barrier, the people are then released to start acting as free agents of reconciliation. Discipleship no longer remains confined to the official channels and can begin to start flowing freely as people catch that vision. Rather than looking to the leadership to give out the assignments and organize the effort, individuals can find the satisfaction of discovering and pursuing intentional discipleship relationships on their own. That's why people don't start their own ministries. It's because they think that it has to be officially sanctioned by us. It's your responsibility just as much as it's mine and Jack's. So just do it. Just start it. Act. Go. Be the church. Be the mission. See the need. Be bold. Now, I'll talk about whether that's church work or individual Christian work towards the end of this sermon. But I think it's going to surprise you. So start doing this. Do these things. Earn the opportunity with people to talk about Jesus and live every single day with gospel intentionality. Make every relationship with gospel intentionality. Eat every sandwich you eat at a restaurant with gospel intentionality. Talk with every single neighbor and make friendships with them and bring them pies and birthday presents and whatever. My wife is awesome at this. All right, she just shook her head. No, don't tell the story. But I'm just going to say, she's awesome at this. She's awesome. She thinks of our neighbor. She knows everything. I don't, I don't have Facebook. She always knows whose birthday and when. It's so-and-so's birthday. I want to go. All right, let's do it. So just very gospel intentional about continually pursuing our neighbors. She's great at it. It's, it's awesome. If I had Facebook, maybe I'd be better at it. But I don't have it on purpose. Um, so anyway, we have the king of Syria in verse 5 say, yes, I want to do it. So he... Um, He's a direct enemy of Israel that's been going on for 2,500 years. And then we have the king of Israel, verse 6. So he went. So Naaman goes to the king of Israel, because that's the first place he's going to go. It says, so he went 
uh, in verse, this is verse 5b. He went taking with him 10,000 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. I don't know why we know about his clothes changing stuff, but he decided to take that with us, with him. And he goes to the king of Israel. The only place he knows is, I'm going to go to the king of Israel. He doesn't go to the prophet. He goes to the king of Israel. And everything that he took with him is pretty amazing. He went with this much money, um, which equals about one million dollars. Like, that's insane. I know that's a throwback if you're in the 90s. But he takes about one... The king of Syria says, Naaman, here's one million dollars. I want you to be healed. So go be healed. So he goes to the king of Israel. Now, at this particular time, the king of Israel is Jehoram. Second Kings chapter 3, verse 2 describes him as a man who was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. He only ruled for 12 years. He was not a good king because he did not follow Yahweh. So Israel's king at this particular time for Naaman, pointless. He's pointless because he was not close to God's man, Elisha. And since he wasn't close to God's man, Elisha, he was not close to God. I mean, that's the exact same thing for us. You will be pointless if you're not continually being close to Jesus. If you're not close to Jesus, then when people come up to you, you're a pointless person. I mean, that's, that's just as direct as I can be. Be close to Jesus and be on mission or else it's, you're not a pointless person, but you're, you're pointlessly living out the mission. You're always, you know, you're dig- equal d- dignity, value, and worth, made in the image of God, all that stuff. But in regard to the mission, it's, you're not doing anything for the church. You're not doing anything. So be close to Jesus and live with gospel intentionality continually so that people can come to know you, or come to know Christ. So here we see this man taking one million. He's taking one million dollars with him. Now, what he doesn't know is that the grace and mercy of God is not for sale. He thinks just for sale. It's a free gift, by the way. Has been back then and it still is today, according to Romans. Um, We live in a world that's desperately seeking healing, just like Naaman, but all too often is trying to achieve it the wrong way. They think they can buy their spiritual healing. You can't buy your spiritual healing. You have to confess Christ, trust Christ, repent from your sin, turn to Christ, and then you'll be healed. So this world is filled with people that want healing but just have no idea how to get it. They have no idea how to get it. So, in the story, it says, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you my name and my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king has no ability to do this. And he knows that he has no ability to do this. When he, the king of Israel read this, he tore his clothes. I mean, that's not an, like an adult temper tantrum. We're going to talk about what he's doing. It's like, what? what? Who does that? Raw, hook out. That's not what he does. Um, he tears his clothes when he reads the letter. Um, and he goes, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? So he, he freaks out because he realizes in that moment, I'm not close to God. I'm not close to God's man. And I can't do anything. And in my mind, I'm realizing that I'm not a good king, and I'm mad, and so I'm tearing my clothes. Because I'm realizing I'm busted here in front of everybody. So he tears his clothes, and he makes this big pronouncement. Am I God? I'm not God. Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. And he even thinks, maybe the king of Syria is trying to start a fight with us again. He wants to come beat me up and take us over again. So he tears his clothes. He does this for likely two reasons. First, he knew that it was completely out of his power to heal Naaman. It showed that he was a weak king in front of king of Assyria. And he also knew that he had no relationship with Elisha, who was God's man. Um, By the way, the king of Syria assumed that the king of Israel was close to God. People can assume that you're close to God all the time on the outside. You, you You can put up the facade and play the game. You can all be little kings of Israel's and fool everybody. And all of our king of Syria, our friends, can think we're walking with Jesus. But don't, don't be fake. Second thing, it showed that he had no relationship with the man, Elisha. Um, and so he couldn't heal him at all. Those are the reasons why he's mad. So, this is what Elisha does. <clears throat> but verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God. I mean, we want to make sure we know who he is. The writer wants to make sure you know who he is. Elisha hyphen, the man of God, okay, so this guy's important, and he is. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, ah, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? That's crazy. No one does that. That's not what he said. Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. You don't hang out with me. You don't know me. You don't want to be close to God, but I can still do something. Send that guy over here. And then it says this. Let him come to me now that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door. He stood there because he's thinking, hey, I'm a pretty important guy. Come out and greet me. I'm a big deal. 
kind of a big deal. Come, come, come know me. And Elisha is just not going to play that game, which is awesome. We're going to see that in just a second. But he's not going to play that game. But he does do this. Um, Elisha sent a messenger to him. So Elisha hears there's something going on. He takes initiative. He sends and he sends the messenger. What we can see here is that Elisha, it, he's going to be bold and he's going to be a man of action. Third thing I want you to see about being the church. Notice the specific opportunities that God places in your life. For Elisha, the specific opportunity at this particular moment was King of Israel can't help. Naaman needs help. I hear about it. He could have just said, nah, King of Assyria, uh, I don't need him, whatever. But instead, that's a specific opportunity. He's seeking me. I can do something. Tell him to come here, and I'm going to send a messenger. He knows that he has specific opportunities to do something. You all have your own stuff. Everybody here has a specific opportunity from God to be the church. There's people around you, conversations you can have that no one else in the church can have. What's your specific opportunity? Are you taking your specific opportunity? You are uniquely placed in your neighborhood and in your city and in your job and in your family to be able to interact with people that nobody else can. Third thing in the mission is not just notice the needs, not just be bold, but then when those specific opportunities come, do something. Notice it. There's my specific I can do that. Jack can't. I can do that. Christy can't. I can do that. Tim Francisco can't. Tim can do that. I can't do that. Like we all have specific things. What's your specific opportunity? For Elisha, it was this. And he's going to do it. He's going to take on that thing. And I'll just tell you, Jesus in John chapter 34, 35 says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. You've got all kinds of specific opportunities all around you. Jesus saying, hey, look, white for the harvest. Look at all those opportunities. But a lot of the times we are so myopic. We are so tunnel visioned. We are so singular focused or just blind that we just don't know because we're, at least in my experience, so self-focused instead of others-focused. That we are just blind to the opportunities around us. Elisha heard and he sent. Elisha heard there's a need and he sent the messenger to go do something. So Elisha heard that he had tore his clothes. He says that he can have a relationship with, he can be, he can be healed. Nathan, or Naaman comes, he stands at the door. In other words, I'm expecting to be served. I'm a great man. Come, come do something for me. Tony Marita looks at this and he says this. The reason why Elisha doesn't play his game and come out to him to the door, like, oh, you're here, Mr. Naaman. Let me bring you in, make you some tea. But he just, send a messenger. Messenger can take care of it. I'm going to make sure he knows that he needs to be humble. This is what Elisha, uh, Marita says. The gospel must first humble us before it heals us. That's what's happening right here. You know what? I know he needs a need, but I know he expects something big because he, he expects me to come out and kind of play his big game. He's so important. Messenger, go give him this message. The gospel must first humble you before it heals you. I think that's really good. So here, he's going to meet the need. This is what happens. Elisha sent a messenger, I'm at verse 10, to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored. That's how it's going to happen. You want to be healed, Naaman? Go out to the Jordan River, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, you'll be healed. Done. Sent the messenger to say that. He didn't go himself. But he did notice and he got busy. Well, this is what happens. Um, But Naaman went away angry and saying, behold, I, (laughs) this is so funny. I thought that he would surely come to me and not send his messenger and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hands all over the place and cure me. I just love, like, weren't you going to come out and just do some hocus pocus or something? Like, that's what I was expecting. I wanted a show. He just sent this one guy and said, go to my dirty river and wash seven times. What? So I think it's awesome that uh, he's expecting literally like somebody just to come wave, kind of like me, like, wave your hands all around all the time. But that's not what happens at all. That's my favorite part, probably. And so he gets a little ticked, and he's like, this is, what Na- this is what Naaman says. Here's how you can be healed. I don't like the way you tell me I can be healed, God. I want my own way to be healed. Oh, man. Is that not like us? I don't like how you heal me, God. I don't like how you change me, God. I want you to heal me, but be it on my terms. Is that okay, God? And God's like, no. This is what he says. The Jordan River, are you kidding me? I don't want to go to your Israelite Jordan River. I've got my own rivers. Are not the Abana and the Far Par, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? 
forget your little Jordan River. I got, I got Mac Daddy rivers. Why wouldn't you send me to my rivers? I got the best rivers. I don't care about your little podunk river. Forget it. And he leaves. It's like, forget it. I'm not doing that. Man, the gospel must first humble us before it heals us. That's what's happening here. He does not want it. Now, obviously, um, if you keep going, you'll see here uh, in verse 13. So he turned and he went away, by the way, in a rage. He went away in a rage. 13. But his servants came to him with, I think, also great boldness. Great boldness here. I mean, he's in a rage. How many of you like to talk to people that are above you in commanders, if you have that, and they're in a rage? That's when I'm like, mm, you can have your moment. I'm walking away. This is what the servant came near and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? I mean, in other words, could you get over yourself and be humble? Think about what they're asking. Healing. He, he's promising healing. And you're, you're trifling about rivers. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. So let's stop here and I want you to see the fourth thing. This is, this is huge for us as a church. This is huge for us to know how we're going to fulfill the mission. Number four. Find and meet people's physical needs that live and work and play around you. That's what Elisha did. His physical need was leprosy to be healed. And I'm going to find it and I'm going to meet it. Now, obviously, your heal, meeting of physical needs is going to be much differently than Elisha. You're not going to send a messenger and you're not going to tell somebody to go wash in the Lake Wiley seven times or something. Um, but I will submit to you that this twofold structure of finding physical needs and meeting them in order to, for them to finally hear the gospel and trust Jesus. This is the biblical path. This is why we named the church Remedy. Because we want to be a remedy to the city and meet physical needs. And as we do that, tell them about the remedy, Jesus, and so they can be saved. That's the whole point of the church's name from day one. And this twofold structure is all in the, old, in the New Testament. This is how Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, they bring him the paralytic and he... He heals him and he forgives his sins. In John chapter 5, Jesus literally steps over all kinds of invalids. And there's just scores of them and goes to the one guy and heals him and tells him to get up. And then later on, he meets him and he tells him he needs to put his faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Peter goes up to the man that's, that's, that's uh, paralyzed. And what does he do? He heal- I don't have any gold. I don't have any silver. I'm a broke fisherman and I ain't fished in three years. But what I can do is heal you. Meet your physical need. And the man runs out praising the Lord. This twofold structure of meeting physical needs and then telling them about their Savior and Jesus is all over the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Therefore, this is what we need to do. We need to, as number four says, find and meet people's physical needs that live and work and play around you. It's going to cost you time, money, your candy score, crush game, you're not going to be as good at it. You won't be on level 700 or whatever it is. You might just be at level 50 your whole life because you're so busy doing church work. You're not going to be caught up on Netflix. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you to find and meet people's physical needs. You might not be able to take the best vacation. You might have to leave a day early because that extra $150 is going to be paying somebody's electric bill that month or whatever. Find and meet people's physical needs. This is the biblical pattern of the Christian church all throughout the New Testament. Naaman was angry. He didn't want for it to happen this way. His expectation of how God should work for him was crushed. And he was offended. He had in his mind that God would only work a certain way. And he tells him, nevertheless, go to the Jordan, washing seven times, not changing my thing. That's what Elisha's basically saying. Nope, that's it. And that's it. That's all it is. Not, not switching it to the Abana for you. It's the Jordan. And that's it. Naaman's reluctance to accept God's remedy is symptomatic of mankind's determination to try to secure their own spiritual healing rather than let the Lord set the parameters of how it's supposed to happen. We're all that way. Heal me my way. Do it my way. 
And he turns around in a, way, in a rage and says, My unmet expectation looks like I'm going to put you in a box, God, and if you don't move my way, I'm going to freak out, walk off in a rage, rather than be submissive on how you choose to, re- to move, God. What's your Abana and Farpar? What's the way that you're choosing to put God in a box and say, you only move this way or else I'm walking away in a rage? What's your plan that you think is better than God's plan? We're all guilty. We're all just like Naaman. I am constantly aware of this. Spurgeon says that Naaman has two enemies. One, pride. Pride that he wants Elisha to come out and see him rather than send that messenger. Can't believe you sent a messenger. Don't you know who I am? The second thing is the evil questioning. is why he has to follow God's ways and go wash in the Jordan. Spurgeon points out these are the two wrong things. But you have these beautiful servants that say, could you just please put down your prideful heart? <clears throat> when your community group leader, your wife, or your husband comes to you like the servant, do you receive it? I know my inclination. Don't want to hear it. But Lord has given me a wife that is persistent. And she knows how I am. She's going to just tell me anyway. A number of times. And I'm thankful for it. When the servant of your life comes to you and continually says, would you just humble yourself and go God's way? Do you listen? Will you not do it? This is a simple plea which demonstrates beautiful love. Beautiful love demonstrated. It's the exact type of love that you must display when you plead with people to come to know Christ. Will you not confess Christ and be forgiven forever? This is the kind of love that needs to be demonstrated. By the way, this is just a side note, but it's worth uh, pointing out. The servants came near. It's a great word. So he went, he went and he... He went down and he dipped himself seven times. This word dipped, by the way, so this, this Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And about 2,000 years ago, some people that were writing Greek were looking at that and they say, you know what, I'm going to translate the Old Testament into Greek. And they made a Greek Old Testament. New Testament's written in Greek. So they wrote a Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, which means 70, because they believe 70 people did it. Who knows? But as they wrote it, they took this Hebrew word, which it says dipped, and when they wrote it in Greek, they translated that word baptizo, baptize, or immerse. That's just a side note, but even 2,000 years ago, baptism or immersion is always to be thought of as being dipped down, down into the water. Now, this is important because it gives theological evidence that baptisms should be done by immersion, not sprinklings. But in the story, it's important because he's telling Naaman, you need to go immerse yourself in the water seven times and you're going to go be obedient. Are you going to be obedient? And so Naaman gets over his pride and he goes and he does it. So he went and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored. Now, the writer wants to do a little play on words to point you back to the hero of the story, the little servant girl. And he says this, and he was restored like the flesh of the little child, and he was clean. The writer is doing this absolutely important. He's playing a little Hebrew, pointing you back to verse 2, and he's saying, Naaman had a problem to which the little girl, and only the little girl, had the solution. But he had to become like her spiritually. In other words, he had to exercise faith in God's man, of which she already had. She already had faith in God's man, and he had to do that as well. And if he did that, then he would become not just like her spiritually, but like her physically. And his skin would look like the little child. So it's important. The, the writer's trying to point you to all of that, saying she's the hero of the story. Well, obviously it's Jesus. But she's the, the, the secondary hero of the story, if you will, because he has to have faith in, in God's man. Now, if we just point that forward, it's the exact same thing. For us to be healed spiritually, we must also put our faith in God's man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. A prophet, yes, but not just merely a prophet.
prophet that was a shortcut to life. He's also our priest that makes the sacrifice for us all. And he's the king also that bankrolls the entire transaction. And it's worth far more than $1 million. Here's the question that comes up. Do you see Joseph? This is unbelievable scripture. Jesus is always the true inventor of all the Old Testament. Now, here's what happens. What's the result? Naaman gets healed and goes back? No, watch this. Then he returned to the man of God. He doesn't go home. He returns back to Elisha. He and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, this declaration is amazing. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That is a declaration demonstrating saving faith. Met the physical need, comes to know Jesus. Because Jesus was God in the Old Testament too. Fifth thing for us to know, fifth facet for what it means to be the mission. I know it's long. You don't have to write it down if you don't want. Take a picture with your phone if you want. Zoom in. Always look for the moment when you can tell them the gospel. And they can believe in Jesus and be forgiven of their sins and declare, just like Naaman, there is no God in all the earth but Jesus. We meet the physical needs of people for the express purpose. If you're not a Christian here, let me just be completely honest with you. I want you to be a Christian. I'm not hiding that. I'm not bait and switching you. I am going to serve you. I am going to be nice to you. I want you to be my friend. And I'm not just trying to do that just for you to become a Christian, but you need to know I want you to be a Christian. That's just out there. I can put it out there in the very beginning. And we should not be ashamed because the most loving thing is Revelation 14 will happen if they don't know Jesus. And that haunts me. The most, the most loving thing I can do is say, I want you to become a Christian. Don't ever let this particular... If you've done all one through four and you don't do that last, which might be awkward, step of here's how you can know Jesus. If you don't do that last, maybe awkward step, then they might not come to know Jesus. And yes, I'm reformed. We have to take advantage of these last points of, of mission so that they can, we can tell them the gospel and yes, they can come to know Christ. What happens next? He says that he is going to be a believer. He comes back and says, I am now one who was far off. I was a Gentile and now I was once an outsider and now I believe in Jesus. Just like all of us, once we were outsiders and now we're putting our faith in Christ. The healing of Nathan is instant and full and it's a beautiful picture of exactly what happens to our new status. We are now have a new status and identity in Christ whenever we are a new creation in Christ. So here, here's the whole point. This is, if you saw this week, I was saying you've got to be here. This is, this is why you have to be here, this, this point right here. How does this apply specifically to Remedy Church? How does this apply specifically to you? Here's how. Let's talk about this. What is the mission of the church? I don't mean Remedy Church. I mean literally the church. Every local church, biblically, is supposed to do something. What is that mission? Let's just acknowledge that there is a mission. Um, Chris Wright says, It's not so much the case that God has a mission for His church in the world as that God has a church for His mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. Mission precedes church. In other words, the church isn't like God's company that He has over to His house and He feels obligated to entertain. It's like, oh, I got this church over at my house. I need to give them something to do. I know what I give them to do. A mission. Go do something. It's not that. It's quite the opposite. Instead, God's saying, I have a mission. I have a mission that needs to get accomplished to seek and save sinners. I'm going to create the church to go do that mission. It's not like He has a church and needs to create something for us to do. There's a mission. Instead, He has a mission and so He creates the church to go do it. So yes, we have a mission. Every church has a mission. We need to realize that there is a specific mission given to every single local body congregation. And it's the exact same mission. What is it? What is the mission of the church? Well, here's, let's read some things. There's, there's differing opinions actually on this. 
I'm going to read one, and I want you to tell me what you think. At least if you want. DeYoung and Gilbert. This is what they write. Kevin DeYoung, Greg Gilbert. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might obey, worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity for the glory of God. We hear that one. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Go make disciples, bring them into the church so they can become worshipers. Do you notice anything missing? Where's point four in there? Where's point four in there? Now, I love these guys. These guys are way smarter than me, right? But this is where the differing thing, and I think that this little differing, this, oh, the, go- the church's mission is just proclaiming the gospel, or is the church's mission as not just proclaiming the gospel, but also embodying that gospel as we live our lives and do justice. I think it's both. So Stott, John Stott says, mission is everything that the church is sent in the world to do. It's not only making disciples, but mission includes evangelism and social responsibility, since both are authentic expressions of love. Now, if you're going to put me in a box, you're going to say, but you got to choose one or the other. You have one five-second, ten-second, fifteen-second conversation with this guy. What are you going to do? You're going to give him a sandwich or tell him about Jesus. Which one are you going to do? I'm going to tell him about Jesus, all right? You're going to put me in the box. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. But likely, no one's going to live their life in that box. Just, I only have five seconds here. If you do, then tell them about Jesus. But likely, I'm talking about the people in your city, your neighborhood, and your spheres of influence. That's who I'm talking about. Stott says that it's everything. Wright, who I just read before about mission, he also expresses there must be a proper balance between both declaration of the gospel and demonstration of the gospel. Both word and both work. And he adds that these two things from New Testament times have never been separated and somehow they have been now. And, and mission of the church is not supposed to be separated or just, oh, the mission of the church is to make disciples, but individual Christians can do good works, but that's not church work. That's just individual Christian work. I disagree with that. I disagree with that completely. Abraham Kuyper, I think he's going to be helpful, helpful for us. I know I'm reading people that you never heard of, but just listen to what they're saying because this is important. Abraham Kuyper, he lived in the Netherlands maybe 200 years ago. He says, Jesus is Lord of all. And because of that fact, every aspect of our lives should be affected by the fact that we are Christians. If Christ is Lord, he is Lord of of our work, our leisure, our families, our friendships, our goings on outside the four walls of the church building and outside those, inside the four walls of the church building and outside those walls. He's not just the Lord over certain religious things, but he's Lord over art, science, politics, economics, education, and homemaking. He's Lord over everything. Therefore, this is me, not him. Therefore, if, if all this is important to Jesus, all these things that he wants us to actively participate are acts of worship to him. And when we do those things, then this is participating, I believe, in the mission of God. Now, you're going to say, likely, if you're tracking with me still, if you're following with me still, sorry. She doesn't like when I say tracking because I listen to Matt Chandler too much. Um, and it just happens. So anyway... Some will overswing the pendulum and just do social justice. Some will just do social justice. And there will swing that pendulum too far. And for them, the mission of God is only social work. It's only social justice. It's only trying to make this present world look like the kingdom. The kingdom that's not here and not coming till Jesus comes back, by the way. Um, So they'll swing it too far. And that is a truncated, weak, abbreviated gospel. It's anemic. It's not the gospel. And if they swing the pendulum too far and don't have gospel presentation, then they're not doing the mission of the church. That, you have to realize, evangelism, that's absolutely essential. But some people can, I think, swing the pendulum too far to the, only, the other side and only do evangelism. If you underswing it or swing it to the other side and don't engage in social justice, I believe that that's also a truncated, weak, anemic gospel. And it doesn't demonstrate, or I should say it this way, it screams to the people, I don't really care about you really. I care about your, your, your long term, but these physical needs that you're going to, this is what happened in segregation and slavery to the churches in America. They said the best thing, I've, I've been researching it, the best thing we can do is tell you about Jesus. I'm not going to fight against the systemic thing called slavery and segregation. That's the reason why Christians in the South did not participate in helping the slaves, or most Christians, I should say, and, and didn't participate in 
killing slavery or killing segregation. It's because they said, it's not my, it's not my job. It's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is help you get saved. So if we underswing the pendulum, we don't think that social justice is important. So those that proclaim the gospel, those that believe in Jesus, must embody that message also, not just proclaim it. You must live out every day. That takes me back to that Dave Horner quote. You're free. You're free to go embody that gospel. You're free to live it out. Jack and I don't have to say, yes, let me ordain that ministry. You're the church. You're the church. We're the church and you're the church. We're all the church. So we have to keep a good balance. Keeping the balance of good deeds and gospel proclamation. Always try, striving to do both. And here's, here's what it means. It means that when you are doing this, when you are walking around by yourself doing good words, good works, you are acting as agents. You're not individual Christians doing stuff. Anytime Monday through Saturday, when you're walking around through Rock Hill and you're doing good deeds, you're not an individual Christian at that moment doing a good deed. You are an acting agent of Remedy Church, representing Remedy Church, and doing church mission work for Remedy Church in that particular instance. Every time you do a good deed Monday through Saturday, even Sunday afternoon through night, You are an agent of Remedy Church acting on behalf of Remedy Church, doing mission work for Remedy Church. It's huge. It's huge for us to get that. Here's how we try to do it at Remedy. Community groups, we try to push you continually to do those things at Winthrop. Push you. Winthrop, pick a group so that you have 12 people that you can go do it with. And we've seen far more success, I think, with that. And here's the other way that's going to happen. This one might surprise you. We depend on, we, we do it two ways. One through community groups. The other way we do mission. And this is crazy. But this is the only way I can see it. We depend on you to be serious enough about your faith that you will be so moved by the gospel that you will naturally want to every day be so captivated by Christ that we trust you're not going to turn your life focus onto yourself. But instead, you will beat your body and make it your slave so that you can daily push yourself to be as bold as that little girl, not wait for programs to be started, not wait for mission to be organized so that you can do it, but instead live with the idea that people are going to go to hell if I don't forever spend my life meeting their physical needs and tell them about Jesus. That's our plan. Community groups and you taking up that and saying, I'm just going to do it. Taking up the mentality like Spurgeon that says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. That's, that's our plan. You might think that's crazy. And here's the thing. Here's the most tricky thing. I can inspect and I can encourage that first one, community groups. I have no idea about the second. There's there's no possible way that I can know as your pastor. I can have, there's no way that I can follow up on that and see if you are living out the mission in everyday life of gospel intentionality. But I can tell you in sermons, you're the church. So very intentionally, just so it's crystal clear, how can you fulfill the mission of Remedy Church? Be in a community group that reaches out to the Winthrop campus and reach out to your neighbors that God has put around you and do the biblical pattern of meeting their physical need and telling them about Christ. That's how you specifically every day can fulfill the mission of Remedy Church. That's, that's the plan. Now, that takes me back to the title. You are Remedy's Elisha. You. You're the Elisha. You're our hope. If we're going to do it, it's because you're going to do it. Not just because Jack and I are going to try to do our best to lead it. But you're going to do it. You're going to say, yes, I am going to specifically start living out the mission of Remedy Church. I'm going to take this up and I'm going to say, without a doubt, from day forward, this day, It's not just an individual Christian acting, doing good works. I'm a mission agent of Remedy Church acting specifically with every good work I do. That's Remedy Church work. And yes, I'm going to do it. If everyone 
takes the posture of the little servant girl, be, and it becomes bold, and their life is so transformed by the great gospel that we carry and that carries us, this can happen. That's, that's our hope here at Remedy. It's the way that we're going to be able to do the mission. It's literally all of us have to do it. And if that happens, then we'll start seeing multiplication. We'll start seeing more people in community groups. We'll start seeing more people get saved. We'll start seeing more people get baptized. We'll have to start creating more community groups because you say, yes, I'm going to live out the mission. Yes, I'm going to take up the challenge. Yes, I'm going to live out the mission. So let me close with this. I know it was long, but let's, I want to close with this. I am going to plead with you and make a challenge that you would live this out. That you would say, yes, I'm going to self-reflect, examine my heart. All of us with our own shortcomings, confess and repent and say, now I will change. I will be more bold and I will take up this great mission of Remedy Church and live it out the rest of my life. If this is your church, I'm pleading with you to say, yes. As difficult as it might be, as much work as it might be, as hard as it might be, yes. This is the pivotal day where I'm going to start living it out. We're absolutely depending on it. It won't happen unless we all take it up. Because we're a body. We're a body. And a body is depending on the body to do the mission. We're going to sing a song called Jesus I Come. And as we sing this, I want you to let this be your song where you're saying, yes, Jesus, I come. Yes, I come and confessing that you are my only hope. And yes, I come to say, I'm submitting to your mission and I'm going to live it out every day. And then we'll take up our offering after that. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we worship. Be with us now, Lord, as we think of this challenge that you've given to us and that we will live out the mission of the church. We love you, God, and we praise in Jesus' name.